This church is full of mathematical geniuses with incredible memories. You may not have thought of yourself like that, but when it comes to keeping count of how many times someone's hurt you or offended you, you're experts with photographic memories. I'm no different. Uh, We're specialists at remembering how many times someone's left the bath mat on the floor or not taken out the garbage. We have a photographic memory for the times we've been unjustly accused or missed out on a deserved reward. We're experts at holding grudges, at bearing resentments, at refusing to forgive. We're great at storing them away for future use and reminding the offender every chance we get. And we're not alone. Our world is full of bitter, angry, unforgiving people, bruised, resentful because of injustices and offences, people wounded by broken relationships, marriages, families, workplaces, churches, communities, even diplomatic relations between countries lie in ruins because of pride, self-righteousness, unrepentance, unforgiveness. It's never been any different. We're not getting any better now that we're modern and more civilised and advanced. If anything, we're getting worse. We need a better way. People are desperate for a better way. Our world needs it. Jesus offers a better way. Something brand new and unique. He offers us the unconditional forgiveness of God. And he dies in our place to win it. But then he calls us to offer that same unconditional, complete forgiveness to others. Again and again. And that's a forgiveness that has the potential to change the world. But he doesn't just command it. He gives us the motivation and the power to do it. And if we could begin to proclaim that forgiveness and then reflect it and model it, well, I reckon that would change our world, one person at a time. Let me show you how. Uh, The passage we just read begins with a question from Peter. Now, Peter is one of us. He is one who uh, has a long memory for bearing a grudge. The context, if you look at the paragraph above, Jesus has been teaching about restoring a sinner. From verse 15, how to encourage towards repentance someone who has sinned against you. And the emphasis is about reconciliation, about winning your brother over, leading him, pointing out to him his sin, leading him towards repentance so that you can then forgive him. But as Peter's been listening to all of this teaching, he comes to Jesus with a very natural sort of question for a scorekeeper, for a grudge holder. He turns the whole thing around. Uh, See there in verse 21? How many times? If I point out my brother's sin and he repents, how many times do I have to forgive him? When can I stop with reconciliation? When can I stop forgiving? Uh, When can I start getting revenge? When can justice start? And then he suggests what he, no doubt, thinks is a very generous number. Surely seven would be enough. 
But Jesus comes back with an answer that really says, just lose the calculator. Wipe the memory card. Not seven, but 70 times seven. Just forget keeping score. And then he tells a story. A story that shows that Peter's whole way of thinking is wrong. And it's a story that provides the antidote to Peter's sickness. A story that provides the cure for his disease. A story about a king who decides to settle accounts with his servants. First up, they drag in a guy who owes 10,000 talents. Verse 24. It's a huge sum. Someone has suggested 1,500 years' wages. It's even more than a Sydney mortgage. But the basic point is he's got no way of repaying it. This is impossible. 1,500 years' wages. How do you repay that? And that's the first lesson we learn from this story. We all owe a debt to God that we can't possibly repay. We all owe a debt to God we can't possibly repay. But notice, that doesn't stop the servant making the offer to repay. See there in verse 26, the king orders the family sold into slavery. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. (laughs) Not just part of the debt. There's no offer of five cents in the dollar to the liquidator. He's got the cheek to promise the whole lot. Who does he think he's trying to fool? He doesn't realise the extent of his debt. He doesn't realise the number of zeros that come after that number at the front. He's living in dreamland. And yet it's a very common attitude from people when it comes to God. When it comes to God, they think they're not really that bad. They don't think their debt is that big. It won't be that hard to pay off. They try all sorts of things to restore their heavenly bank balance. They think being nice to people will do it. Sponsoring a World Vision child, recycling their plastics, buying fair trade coffee, getting solar panels, being tolerant and not judging people. Surely that'll do it. That'll fix things up. Doing good deeds that will cancel out the bad deeds. As if going under the speed limit somehow cancels out your speeding ticket for going over the speed limit. But people are just fooling themselves when they do that. They're not fooling God. There is no repayment plan you can come up with to cancel your debt to God. The reality is we all owe him a debt we can't possibly repay, good or bad, young or old, educated or not, rich or poor. All of us. Our lives revolve around pleasing the number one person in our life, ourselves. That's our basic human nature. It's the bias we have, like a bowling ball, a lawn bowl. We we just lean that way, towards ourselves. At the same time, we ignore our creator, our sustainer, our saviour, which is the ultimate sin, the root of all the rest. We may be doing good deeds, Yet all the while we're spending up at the ATM of God's patience. We're building up an unrepayable debt with a spending spree of rebellion and independence and I know better than him in thoughts, words and deeds. We're headed for a day of reckoning. We're headed for a heavenly audit 
when the King of the Universe will call us to settle accounts. And so the problem with us holding grudges and keeping score and refusing to forgive is the the self-righteousness and the, the pride of it. Because it forgets the debt that we all owe and we can't possibly repay. How can we possibly hold a grudge and hold unforgiveness against people when they sin against us? But the incredible thing about this story is that despite the overconfidence of the servant, despite his audacity to think he he could possibly repay, the king showed mercy. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. One minute he owed millions, the next a clean slate transferred from hopelessly drowning in debt to owing nothing, free as a bird. It's extraordinary. It's shocking. It's unfair. This servant didn't deserve it. It's unfair, certainly when you think about others who owed less and probably were still required to pay. His debt was extravagantly cancelled. That's the second thing Christians can learn from this parable. Your debt has been extravagantly cancelled. God promises us unearned forgiveness in place of judgement. Grace in place of justice. Freedom in place of slavery. Jesus teaches it, but he does more than just teach it, he earns it. He takes the just punishment. He pays your debt so you can gain the freedom that he deserves. He teaches it, but then he earns it for us. It seems so unfair that we receive what Jesus deserves and Jesus receives what we deserve. It seems so unfair. If you're a Christian whose sins are forgiven, you don't deserve that. It's not because you've worked harder or understood the truths better or are a nicer person. It's not because you're better educated or have a more important job. It's not because you've read the right books. God showed you grace when you didn't deserve it. You owed a debt you couldn't possibly repay, but it's been extravagantly cancelled. Those are two extraordinary truths. You owe a debt you can't possibly repay and your debt has been extravagantly cancelled. Those truths, those two truths, are why we sing. We really do have something to sing about. Nobody in Australia sings except for Christians and drunk people at football matches. We sing because we've got something to sing about. We sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. 
How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his rewards? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Now, they're words you can only sing if you know two truths. That you're a sinner who has a debt you can't possibly repay and secondly, that your debt has been extravagantly cancelled. They express the incredible, unbelievable, shocking truth that in a world full of guilty people, a world full of people who owe a debt they can't possibly repay, there are some whose debt's been cancelled. It brings a smile to your face. It brings joy to your heart when you sing. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you look at your own life and you realise that truth number two isn't you. Your debt hasn't been cancelled. Perhaps you know that truth number one does describe you, that you owe God a debt you can't repay. Well, if that's you, then accept the wonderful offer of truth number two, because that's what it is. It's an offer as well. God is offering to cancel your debt, to forgive your sin. All you need to do is ask. And like the king with the servant, he'll wipe it clean. And you too can know truth number two and sing those words with conviction. But that's not what happened with this servant. Verse 28, there was no changed life, there was no gratitude, there were no songs of praise, just this. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Maybe the equivalent of a few thousand dollars. It's not insignificant, but it's certainly something that the other servant could have repaid, which is what he suggests. He fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. (laughs) Sound familiar? They're almost identical words to the first servant. And yet the response is the complete opposite. Instead of cancelling the debt, instead of paying it forward, he refused. Verse 30. He went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. Now, I don't know, I'm not actually sure how you can repay a debt if you're stuck in prison, but maybe I'm missing something. Uh, But the servant was shown mercy, but refused to show mercy. He'd been forgiven, but failed to forgive. And as a hearer, we're shocked. We're meant to be shocked. It's just unnatural to respond to grace the way this guy does. Well, his fellow servants are shocked. They report it back to the king. The king brings the servant in, verse 32. You wicked servant. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? It seems so natural. 
that when you recognise the size of the debt you've been forgiven, any debt someone has to you, it just can't measure up. It just seems obvious to show mercy. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's because you've been forgiven, you're able to forgive. You see, Jesus is calling us to see things the way God does. To see part one and part two of this story. You see, if we'd only heard part two of the story, the servant meets another servant who owes him money and threw him in jail when he couldn't pay, well, we'd think, okay, fair enough, tough but fair, he deserved it, he owed a debt, this guy called it in. It's natural, that's the way the world works. People seek justice when others owe them a debt. But it's the first part of the story that's different, isn't it? It's the first part of the story that gives the true perspective, that highlights the hypocrisy, that makes his behaviour so wrong. The point is, almost everybody else only has a second part of the story. Most people don't know the first part of the story. They haven't experienced it. They don't know what it means to be forgiven an unpayable debt. And so it's only natural to hold a grudge, to demand revenge. But if you're a Christian, you have a part one. Your impossible debt's been extravagantly cancelled. And so it's natural to reflect that extravagance to others. And that's the third truth we learn from this story. You show you understand such grace by reflecting it towards others. It's a natural response when you've been shown mercy to show mercy. So whatever sin has been committed, committed against you, whatever hurt, whatever bitterness you hold, no matter how huge, how frequent the slip-up, Jesus calls us, Jesus commands us to forgive freely, to show grace without limit. Because whatever you forgive can never measure up to the debt that you've been forgiven. You see, ultimately, to hold on to a grudge is to say something about God. To hold on to a grudge is to doubt God. To forgive is an act of faith in a just God. To hand over justice to the God who will judge is to trust him. He's the one who's far better at being fair than you or I are. Romans 12, 19 and 20 puts it like this. Romans 12, 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave the justice up to God. That's what he's good at. Someone's harmed you, let it go. Bless those who persecute you, Romans 12 says. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. If they repent, forgive them. It'll be good for your blood pressure. It'll be good for your mental and spiritual health. God will make sure justice gets done. 
But as for you, Jesus says, forgive heartily, forgive without limit. He's calling us to be people of grace. He's calling for a radical transformation in how we treat people. Jesus wants his church to be a haven of grace, a secure little island of forgiveness. Not an island of perfection, but an island of forgiveness, where we show patience with one another. To show patience means someone must be doing something that requires you to show patience. God wants us to be a people who are quick to confess sin to each other and quick to forgive. Too often churches are not like that. People just change church rather than deal with sin, to deal with conflict, to deal with a lack of reconciliation. Jesus calls us to be an island of grace in a stormy sea of ungrace, which is what our world is. The reality is, our world is a place where ungrace is the natural response. It's the way of people who haven't known a debt extravagantly cancelled. Ungrace dominates resentment, bitterness, judgmentalism, unforgiveness means there are broken relationships everywhere. We live in a world of striving and me first, a world where the early bird gets the worm, a world of no pain, no gain, a world where there's no such thing as a free lunch, a world where you need to demand your rights, where you get what you pay for. It's a world of ungrace. But what separates Christianity from every other religion is grace. We are in a unique position. We are the ones who have an act one to our story, whose debt has been extravagantly cancelled rather than just an act two. The fourth truth that flows from this story is that the world is hungry for grace. The world is hungry for grace. They long to know forgiveness and acceptance and reconciliation. There are a lot of bitter, twisted, angry, hardened, frightened people out there. People who've been hurt, who've been consumed by unforgiveness. They've been hurt but refuse to forgive or who've done wrong but refuse to say sorry. People who've never been shown grace The world is full of people waiting for the other person to make the first move. Refusing to admit their mistake, that would be weakness. Refusing to apologise or forgive. The world is full of husbands waiting for wives to go first. Fathers waiting for sons. Mothers waiting for daughters. Brothers waiting for brothers. The world is full of ex-best friends who no longer speak. It cripples people. It destroys people. The world is full of people like this. Well, let's be honest, because to forgive is achingly difficult, isn't it? Anyone who has had something big to forgive will tell you how hard it is and how you have to keep making that decision. 
You make it and then you waver and you think, do they deserve this? Why, why am I forgiving them? That's crazy. And then you recommit to it again. And it's difficult. To, to forgive is unnatural. To forgive is unfair. To simply overlook hurt is unfair. To wish well someone who's wished you harm, it's unfair. Someone who's hurt you needs to be punished, not forgiven. To forgive is costly. To forgive is costly. You bear a cost whenever you forgive. It might be a financial cost, it might be an emotional cost. But the Christian is able to forgive, to bear the cost, because the cost of sin has already been borne. We can bear the cost of forgiveness because we don't need to bear the cost of the sin. Jesus, our suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He bore the cost of sin. If you're struggling to forgive, Jesus gives you this antidote. Begin by recognising you owe a debt you can't possibly repay. Secondly, if you're a Christian, recognise that your debt has been extravagantly cancelled. If you understand both those truths, you will begin to be able to genuinely live out truth number three, to show uh, that you understand grace by reflecting it towards others. Someone has described forgiveness like air you breathe. If you hold on to a lungful and refuse to breathe it out, you can't actually breathe in God's forgiveness. So breathe in God's forgiveness. Remind each other of the truths of his promises and his nature. And then breathe that truth, uh, breathe that truth in deeply and then breathe out uh, the breath of forgiveness to those around. Show you understand the grace shown towards you uh, as you are extravagant towards others because our world is hungry for grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a people of grace, that we would recognise the debt that we've been forgiven and show that grace towards others. For Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.